BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Friend of a Friend. It's your host, Olivia Perez. Annie Lawless is a serial entrepreneur. She's a founder of two successful companies, Suja Juice and Lawless Beauty. At just 27 years old, she was Suja's youngest founder, a company that was one of the U.S.'s first and largest organic juice brands that landed at number one on Inc.'s 5,000 fastest growing companies in the food and beverage category. In 2015, Suja sold 50% of the company, 30% to Coca-Cola and 20% to Goldman Sachs at a $300 million valuation. Now she's building a clean beauty empire with Lawless Beauty, a beauty brand that aims to provide the same makeup we all love to use, but with clean ingredients. In this episode, Annie and I talk about what it's like to start fresh after the sale of a lifetime, how she's working to navigate the clean beauty space, and her best entrepreneurial advice from how to pitch to embracing a little tension. Here's my friend, Annie Lawless. Thanks for having me. Of course. How's quarantine been for you? Where are you? How are you? Tell us all the things. Yeah, so I'm in San Diego, and it's been interesting. I'm pregnant, so... Congratulations. It's a weird time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's great. But I, like I'm doing all my appointments alone. My husband can't come to anything, none of my scans. And then nothing? No. And then my doctor was like, well, everything's wow. looking normal. So we're going to cancel your next like five appointments and then we'll just see you in the third trimester. <laughs> oh my gosh. How do you feel? I feel weird because it's my first pregnancy. So like anytime I feel anything, I'm like, is this normal? And it, so not having the reassurance and being able to have these regular check-ins to yeah. be like, hey, this happened, I'm feeling this, is this sensation normal? Kind of weird, but I'm just rolling with it. But so I always like to start the show, where are you from and where do you live now? So I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, and now I live in San Diego and I split my time between here and LA. I've got a place there as well awesome. because that's where Lawless is based. Amazing. Why San Diego? I moved here. I went to law school at USD, actually. Oh, cool. I went to Arizona State, which was just right out of high school. I was living in Phoenix, went to Arizona State. And then right after that, after I graduated, I moved to San Diego for law school. And I went to USD for a year and a half. And then I started Suja kind of during that time. So I didn't finish law school, but I stayed here because Suja happened. Then I met my now husband here and we just kind of based our life here. But all of my friends and my new business is in LA. So splitting the time is worked really well for me because it's really only like two hours away. That's really nice. I love that. And I love that both of the businesses that you've started and helped grow are so much about health and wellness. And I would love to hear a little bit about what your first experience with being in touch with your own health and wellness was for you, whether it was like as a kid or in your teen years and what that was like. 
Yeah. So when I was a kid, I had really bad eczema all over my body. It was like my legs, my arms, my face. And I just dealt with it. I never really learned anything in school about health, nutrition, and never drew a correlation between something external. And the reason I had this, I kind of just always thought it was something I would have forever. I was born with it and that was it. And then when I was about 12, I went to a pediatrician who said, you're really old to be experiencing this bout of eczema. Most infants and small children grow out of it. We should do an autoimmune panel because eczema is autoimmune and just see if there's something going on there. So she did. And it turned out I had celiac disease and I had never even heard of it. I'd never heard of gluten. I knew nothing about nutrition. Totally. I ate like in the past (laughs) 10 year thing. Exactly. I mean, there wasn't even whole foods at this time. So, I mean, I ate like every normal kid, pizza, pasta, Pop-Tarts, chicken fingers. All the time. Yeah, cereal. (laughs) That was it. So when I learned that this was related to gluten and kind of saw the food list and everything that I had to cut out, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to completely learn to eat all over again. So it was obviously a challenge because there weren't gluten-free products available like there are now. You couldn't just go buy gluten-free bread and things like that. But I did cut the gluten out. And within a couple of weeks, my eczema was completely gone. And it, it was insane. And I had gone years of using steroid creams. I was a teenager at this point. So it was really becoming embarrassing to me and something I was self-conscious about. So when I saw the eczema completely disappear just from not eating something, it was just this huge light bulb moment for me that, oh my gosh, there is a direct correlation between what I'm consuming and how I look and feel. And that just sparked this like lifelong fascination in me for health and wellness and nutrition. And I read every book I could get my hands on about healing through diet. I got into juicing. I read Dr. Norman Walker's books, who was the first kind of guide to pioneer juicing as a method to cure all of these like degenerative diseases. And he actually created the first cold press. And that was just sort of what sparked my fascination and lives on to this day. Yeah, I love that. I have an autoimmune as well. I have Hashimoto's and gluten has always been- Oh, so does my husband. It's such a challenge. And gluten has always been my worst enemy. I haven't had to cut it out entirely, but like after I eat it, it's a nightmare. I know that you're pregnant, so your body's probably in a very different state. But (laughs) I've been talking a lot about on the show, particularly to people with autoimmune diseases, if they felt a difference during quarantine with their body, not being affected by just the outside elements, whether that's like eating in a restaurant, air pollution, and all of these things. Cause I've noticed a massive difference. Like my hair is, my hair is usually so short. It's like growing like weeds and my skin. Oh, is like that's amazing. Clear. And it's really, I've been thinking so much about what things need to be implemented in my life, like post quarantine, because of the fact that like, there's such a visceral difference to me. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely experienced just the pregnancy hair growth and, you know, Oh my God, your hair's probably like (laughs) down to your hips. It's the most amazing thing. Which is great, except I can't get my roots done in quarantine. So that's not the best, but I would say beyond like the external environmental factors, I've just noticed like the reduction of stress and go, go, go and traveling and sleeping more actually has a really positive impact on your immune response because you're way less inflamed. So I think just like one huge thing I'm going to take out of this is the slowing down aspect and like not feeling constantly compelled to be doing, 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 pushing myself, pushing myself, because I do think that that has really calmed inflammation in my body. And I do think people 
especially someone like me and like you who are always go, 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 had this fear of what it meant to slow down and what it would look like to actually slow down. We were like, okay, is this going to like put our career back? Or like, are we not going to be as relevant in our field? And it's funny now that I've slowed down. I was like, wow, I have done so many things that I haven't gotten to do or have wanted to do for so long. And, And that has all been a product of the thing that I've been really afraid of for so long. Yeah. And I think for me, it's almost become my identity to myself is like over, over productivity. And it's like a standard that I hold myself to. And so it's less about disappointing other people or like staunting my career. It's more disappointing myself because I know what I'm capable of. And if I don't realize that and achieve it, I feel like lazy. And so like, it's almost like that has been removed. There's nothing I can go do. I can't travel to XYZ meetings. I can't set this, that, and the other up. So once that's removed, it really allows you to look in. And I think that's been a really great thing that I hope we all take out into the world after this. Because I think we do put most of these pressures that we have that relate to stress, which then damages our health, on ourselves. I agree. Is there anything worse than getting caught in the rain? Hairbrella is the rain hat reinvented, combining fashion and function to keep your hair dry and style protected in any forecast. Black-owned and woman-owned, Hairbrella is the world's first satin-lined rain hat that empowers women to seize the day without worrying about the weather. In addition to the Hairbrella Classic and Kids rain hats, they just launched the Hairbrella Pro, a 100% waterproof solution for hair and face protection featuring a detachable face shield. They'll also be donating one Hairbrella Pro to an essential worker for every one purchased through their Still Fearless program. Visit hairbrella.com to pre-order your Hairbrella Pro and discover their other incredible rainwear options. Stay polished, protected, and prepared with Hairbrella. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port, and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV, and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me, because on With Wit, very little is off limits. Subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing conversations to come. New episodes of With Wit are available every Tuesday on all platforms. I'd love to talk a little bit about Suja. You had mentioned it earlier and that you had the idea for it in law school. Can you talk about that moment and like the spark of inspiration that came to start it? Yeah. So there wasn't really one moment and it wasn't something that we set out to do as a business idea. I was working at a yoga studio. I was teaching kids yoga and I was working the front desk just to make money to put myself through school. And I had this Norwalk press, which was the cold press created by Dr. Norman Walker. And I would always take green juices to class and drink them, you know, kind of while I was working at the front and in my classes. And so a guy came up to take class. He skated up on a skateboard and had a green juice in his hand. And his name was Eric. He became my boyfriend and business partner. But he, we struck up conversation about juice and, you know, said, where'd you get that? We both realized we made it at home. We both had Norwalk presses. And so we just had this mutual love affair for organic food, nutrition, juicing, and health. Long story short, we started dating and we kind of just developed a lot of friendships within the yoga community and at our studio of people that would ask us to make this juice. So we kind of just started this local home delivery service back 
then in San Diego, there weren't any like cold pressed juice places like there are in LA and New York. We didn't have pressed, you know, it was more like Jamba Juice. Which by the way, like when I look back on Jamba Juice, I'm like, oh my God, probably the most unhealthy thing in the world for us at the time. Oh my God, I know. And I thought it was so good for you. Like I they had put, one every day. The base is like frozen yogurt or orange sherbet. <laughs> I you literally used to get it every day and be like, I know, sugar bomb. Yeah. But that's, you know, the evolution of natural products, whether it's food, consumer product goods. I think, you know, we all start somewhere and then it just evolves and it becomes table stakes as the consumer becomes more educated on what's in our food. So we just created this local home delivery service and it really took off. We just gained this local cult following. Within a few months, a couple of investors approached us, just local guys that had tried the juice through their wives and loved it. And they wanted to invest. And I think at the time we were really thinking more of like the blueprint model where it was national local home delivery. Right. People would order online. We weren't thinking retail like Whole Foods. So we kind of started small in just the Southern California area at that time, Whole Foods was starting to roll out brands with that local seal. I don't know if you have that where you are, but it says local near certain products. And then it has however many miles away it was made. And then a picture of who wow, made it. I didn't know that. I never, I never saw it. Yeah. They, cool. It's a local thing. So every store has kind of a different, different little brands, but they were looking for these local cult brands to put in their stores. And so we started talking to them and kind of explained that we were this really small company. We didn't have a 30 day shelf life that they require. We only had three days. We weren't pasteurized, really small operation. And they were intrigued and We did a lot of research to figure out how we could implement HPP, which is a high pressure processing system that helps kill pathogens without heating the juice. So essentially the bottles go into an ice chamber and the ice bath gets pressurized, killing pathogens, but keeping the juice under 40 degrees. So it retains the nutrients. So we launched there and it was really quick. We just started in the Southern Pacific region and within six months, they plussed us out nationally. And it kind of just took off and became this bigger thing than any of us, I think, envisioned, but we rolled with it. It was really a case of right place, right time, because I think this was just on the brink of the organic and clean food movement really taking off. And we were one of the first organic cold pressed juice brands that was able to go retail on a national scale. I also really love that you guys started from a community level. I've had Mm -hmm. so many different entrepreneurs on here that talk about obviously the success of like Facebook marketing and like all of these like big mass marketing machines. But it's been really cool to hear about companies that have almost literally gone door to door and started with having a really strong community base in the beginning that's helped them just absolutely skyrocket. For sure. And I think that really helps with the authenticity piece because I think the brands that really resonate with consumers start from a true passion and like an actual need. Even with my current business, I really create products that I'm looking for that I want for myself. And so I think that really translates. A lot of times, you know, these little startups, you have no idea what you're doing, but you have an idea. And if it's a need for you, it's a need for other people. And so just kind of learning as you go, we were really kind of bootstrapping for a while. We used to just make it in our apartment. We would buy produce off the shelf at Whole Foods. Like we didn't even have retail accounts or wholesale accounts. I mean, it was a very small operation, but it did grow very quickly. And we quickly grew the team and just kind of learned along the way. I love that. Speaking of learning, I think with both of your businesses, Suja, particularly because you were in such an unknown space at the time, like juicing was nowhere near where it is now, especially with the amount of education. And same thing with clean beauty. I think there is so much to learn and so much knowledge to be shared. um, And also obviously a ton of regulations that need to be reformed. Mm -hmm. But with both of your businesses, how have you been able to navigate these unknown businesses, whether it's a resource or 
you know, your own research that you've been able to do in order to be at the forefront of both of these industries and advocate for change? Yeah. So food and beauty are two different animals, but really in clean, it's very similar at the time. You know, there was no definition of raw. What is organic? You know, is it 99% of the ingredients? Is it, you know, hundred percent? Luckily with food, there was FDA regulation. So we worked with a lot of consultants to kind of learn what regulations were at that time to be able to say we were raw, to be able to say we were organic, to be able to say we were locally sourced, however many miles away that meant. And so beauty is very different. Beauty right now, clean has a different definition. It's really brands that are defining it. And every brand has a different definition that kind of works for them. (laughs) And they kind of make it, they apply it to their products as they see fit. So for me, you know, food was a little bit easier because there's a much clearer regulatory system around food. Beauty is like the wild, wild west. So I'm really taking it upon myself to educate the consumer on who we are as a brand. What is our blacklist? What are our principles? And almost define clean, like try to be an authority on it a little bit. Like Sephora has their clean seal, but we silicones are allowed on that. We are a silicone free brand. So we're one of the only brands that doesn't have silicone in our foundation. So I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So there's certain things, you know, that we have that are unique to us that we just use kind of our platform and our site. We very clearly state our blacklist, but it is something that I think will get defined as the demand for clean beauty accelerates, which I think is just a matter of time. Completely agreed. I even just find it so difficult sifting through clean beauty myself right now and finding, totally finding what you're saying is that everybody has a different definition. And I'm pretty excited for the day where like we have our own FDA for clean beauty to some extent that like makes everything pretty universal because it is challenging. Like I didn't know about that about Sephora. And I go on Sephora all the time. And if there's the seal of like clean at Sephora, I'm like, great, let's do it. And that's a challenge as a consumer. Everyone has a different perspective. So some people think that silicone isn't that bad for you. And there's a lot of studies that show that it's not that much that's absorbed. From my perspective, it's more of a vanity thing because it creates a wax-like coating on your skin and it traps in dirt and oil and debris. And whenever I use silicone, I break out and I get that pilling that happens when I'm blending out my makeup, the rolling. That's balling up silicone. And it's in moisturizers too. And so it's like a compatibility thing. We can have a whole other conversation about this, but this is yes. like a pet peeve. As we should. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's nothing I hate more than when products pill. Me too, because like, you have to start over. It's a compatibility thing too, because a lot of times, like if you have a water-based foundation, but your moisturizer was silicone-based and you use them right after each other, they actually repel each other so they can pill. There's a lifting that happens when you do silicone on silicone. So if you use a silicone primer and a silicone foundation. So it just simplified it for me to just cut silicone out of all my products and know that they all work together. But it's just an interesting thing. Everybody has their own personal things. And so for me, silicone is not an ingredient that we include, but some brands do. And it doesn't mean I'm right. It just means it's up to us to kind of tell the customer what's clean to us because it is different across every brand. One thing that I would love to talk about and just get your mental thought process on is the fact that you sold Suja at the age of 27 for mm-hmm. at a $300 million valuation, which is like, I'm 26 years old. I couldn't imagine going through that experience <laughs> in a year from now. And I think that there's so much to learn from one, that experience, but also what it means to start fresh afterwards and move on from a company. So can you tell us a little bit about the sale and who approached to? Yeah. So we had grown the brand. We were distributed in not only Whole Foods, but Costco, Target, and our sales had hit a level. Yeah. Where I think we all knew, you know, it was time to bring on a partner and really get some 
capital and some help and some people and some strategic direction from a larger giant, like a Coca-Cola, Pepsi type of company. So we had put it out there that we were definitely interested in either a partial sale, a full sale, bringing on a partner, doing an investment. We were pretty open at that point. We met with you know a lot of different companies and ultimately we were connected with someone at Coke. And after a lot of the meetings we had had, I think it just felt so much more right to us from the team to their positioning of the brand and what they were looking for to add to their portfolio across their brands. They knew that soft drinks were not the way of the future and that, you know, they weren't trying to bring us into their world. They understood they had to come into ours, which was smart and really great to see in a partner. So we went to Atlanta and had many meetings with them and it just sort of evolved from there. I think we all felt really aligned on the marketing, our future vision for the brand. And it seemed like that was the right person to lead Suja into the next phase. So that was sort of how it evolved. And I think at that time, I had never done a partial acquisition. I had never done a sale. I had never taken capital other than our initial investment in Suja and then the the rounds coming after that. But it was really an eye-opening time for me because I learned what it means to bring on a partner and that it's like a marriage and you have to be incredibly aligned and really on the same page. And I ultimately think Coke was the right partner for us. But I think after the sale, and then we also had a 20% sale to Goldman Sachs as well at the same time. I think I just realized I love startup mode. Like I love having my hands on every aspect of the business. And once it hit a certain point and there were so many hands in the pot and it was just such a corporatized environment and there was so many new decision makers and different directions people wanted to go. And it wasn't my original creative anymore. And it wasn't my original product ideas anymore. And I couldn't control certain recipes and, you know, certain things would come out that had more sugar than I would even want to drink. And that just happens, you know, when you sell a business. And I think that's why I decided ultimately that I wanted to take what I had learned, take some time off and take my passion for health and wellness into a new category and kind of get back to that startup phase again, where I could really build something with my own two hands from scratch. Was there a mentor that you had during the sale or any tips you can provide in terms of like advocating for yourself? as you were saying just now, where there are like so many hands in the pot and making sure that like you got what you needed out of the sale of like what you would consider probably like was your baby at the time. Yeah. So I actually didn't have a mentor and it's, that's a great question that you ask because looking back, there are a lot of things I would have done differently. And I think that's, I'm so glad I went through that. I'm so glad it happened the way that it did, because I think that it was a lifelong lesson that taught me so much about business and about life and just really advocating for yourself. But I did, as a the only girl partner really of our original group, I did have to fight back a little bit and I did have to speak up and that did lead to some tension. And I ultimately learned that it's totally worth it and you are valid and you deserve what you deserve and it's okay to speak up and it's okay to ask those questions and to demand certain things. And I did do that, but ultimately that did lead to the degradation of certain relationships internally. But at the end of the day, it's okay. <laughs> it's it's okay. Totally. When it comes to money and business, you won't always be aligned and you have to fight for what's yours and you have to make sure that you can sleep at night knowing that, you know, you did everything that you could to speak up for yourself. And this is like this sale happened in 2015 when like, you know, the pay gap wasn't even like really at the forefront of conversations at that point and like, you know, equality in the workspace and even just being a 
like a woman, like a female founder and being in a room mm-hmm. with a bunch of invest- investors, like the minute I was like, oh, like she was in a room with Goldman Sachs. Like I'm like, I'm intimidated by that. And I hate that that's even a part of the conversation. Yeah. And it can be intimidating and to make sure, like I said, it's a marriage. I just completed my first fundraising round for Lawless. Congratulations. Thank you. In December and my partner's Colt Capital, like I was talking about taking capital for almost two years and I met with so many different people. And then I was talking to them for many months and just made sure like we're friends. I just got off the phone with them. I like miss talking to them. We text all day. It's a very, yeah, (laughs) it's a very (laughs) different type of investor brand relationship than I've ever had before. And I want to make sure that any acquisition that I do in the future will be that way, especially because the brand is by name. They'll probably want me to stay on. And those are the questions you ask yourself when you take capital. Would I be comfortable working with these people if we sell? And it's not, you know, really my company anymore, but they want me to stay on for three, four, five years. Can I work with these people? Do I like them enough to stay on board? Like, do I believe that they want the same things as me where even if they're making the decisions, I can stay and be on board and execute because I love what they're doing because they know that this is what I wanted for the brand. And you guys are mentally aligned. Exactly. So I think having all of that in mind out of the Suja sale and just seeing what worked for me and what didn't is so valuable to apply in my next sale if that were to happen because I I know what I need in order to be happy with the direction of the business after I exit. Young Female Farmers is a four-generationally run farming business in Georgia, started by Clarice Scott, Cameron, Cheyenne, Margot, and Trey Candelario in 2006. Built upon the principles of healthy living, respect for the environment, sustainability, education, and entrepreneurship, their business reflects the power of women, and it's their goal as young women to lend a voice to people around the world who are passionate about healthy food, creating healthier communities, and growing pesticide-free vegetables, baking preservative-free, and cooking from scratch. They serve the usual farm offerings like community-supported agriculture boxes filled with pesticide-free vegetables and eggs, baked goods like old-fashioned sugar cookies and German chocolate pecan pie, but they also work within the community to teach classes in sustainability, lecture at universities and conferences about entrepreneurship and creating your own niche and business, as well as host farm tours for organizations and youth groups. When I asked one of the founders, Trey, about their business mission, she told me the lessons we've learned by being Black, Hispanic, female business owners in the Deep South are invaluable. And we use those lessons to not only further our business, but also to teach others, especially other women and people of color, how to work smarter, not necessarily harder, in order to achieve your goals. They've recently been ranked number five in the world by Huffington Post and Food Tank for changing the food industry, and now want us to get involved in their mission. Visit them at youngfemalefarmers.com place an order. They ship nationwide, so you better believe I'm getting a pecan pie shipped to California, and to learn more about their incredible work and support their mission as well. So what was it like to step away from Suja? I know that you are no longer with your boyfriend, who is also your partner in the Mm -hmm. business. I'd love to hear a little bit about your role in Suja, if there is one anymore, and kind of what it was like as an entrepreneur on an emotional level to step away from that and be in the midst of a new beginning. Yeah, so I'm not involved with Suja anymore, but I'm still great friends with my original partner Eric and ex-boyfriend. Right. I try to keep things cordial with all my ex-boyfriends, I love to hear that. <laughs> including no, him. I really do love to hear that because I think it's such a shame when 
And, you know, it's totally natural. And I under, I totally understand how starting a business with your partner could go sour really quick. Yeah. And I'm not going to say every day was rosy. We definitely had some right. moments and some intense times, especially at the height of the sale when, you know, you get down to numbers and you start to say, yeah. Hey, but you didn't do this. I did this and it can get rocky. And we've had some times where, you know, we didn't speak, but we ultimately always came back to the fact that we created something really cool together. Our relationship served a really meaningful purpose in our lives. We were together for that time as a function of creating this brand. And it was a super fun ride for both of us. And we, we just like feel so grateful and wouldn't change anything about that because we wouldn't yeah. have had to, we wouldn't have gotten that experience together. So I think like, you know, you evolve past it all. It's personal, but it's also part of the bigger picture. And when you get out of that time, you can really see it for what it was and appreciate it. So now you're in a new beginning, Mm -hmm. starting something completely new with Lawless Beauty. Do you have advice for anybody that's listening that is in like the midst of a new beginning and is maybe leaving a business and ready to start a new one or is just like ready to take a break? Yeah. So after Suja, I took about a year and a half off. We sold in 2015. I stayed on for about six months and then I traveled and just kind of regrouped and figured out what it, what Where do I want go? out of my life? I went to Thailand. I went to Bali. I went to Europe. Yeah. I went all over the place and I kind of just decided to get my head out of my day to day and really like step back and evaluate my life. I realized, you know, it's really not about money for me because at that point, I didn't need to jump into something right away. It was more like, what is my purpose? Like I am bored. You know, I don't want to wake up every day without that project, without that challenge. I thrive on a little bit of tension and I needed something to put my passion back into. Throughout that time and even before selling Sucha, I had a little blog on the side that was just a total hobby. It was called blonde.com and I had a YouTube channel and I would just post like makeup tutorials, recipes, health content, fashion, what I was wearing. And it was just like a fun project for me. And I realized I have this huge audience that is so into beauty and my beauty content. And they're always asking me about clean products. And I never recommend clean makeup to them because it all sucks. Like as a makeup person that's used to using NARS, Bobbi Brown, Giorgio Armani, and like all of the you know luxury full color brands... I just was really underwhelmed by clean beauty. I had bought and tried, you know, every brand I could find. And I wasn't looking for a tinted moisturizer. You know, I didn't want a stick balm that I could use on my eyes, cheeks, and lips. I wanted like a full color eyeshadow palette. I wanted like a full coverage blush. I wanted a fully pigmented lipstick. And so I realized, okay, clean right now, there's this white space for makeup girls. It's really for the no makeup makeup, five minute face, natural vibe. And there's definitely a place for that. But what about the girl that does care about what she's consuming and putting on her face, but also like isn't going to sacrifice. And so she's going to keep using her conventional products until something comes along that actually can hold a candle to her favorites in her makeup bag. Sephora was just starting like this big push for clean skincare. And they had brought on brands like Drunk Elephant, Tata Harper, Tatcha. And I had completely switched over to clean skincare. And this is actually when I cut silicone out because I realized that was breaking me out. But my skin cleared up so much. And I was like, okay, I am spending more money and seeking out clean skincare and then putting all of these ingredients back on my skin five minutes later with my makeup. Like this makes no sense. So that was when I was like, okay, if no one is making clean makeup that I would personally want to use as a makeup girl, then I have to do it. Like there have to be so many other girls out there like me. And so I kind of did a blog post just gauging interest from my audience on like, you know, how would you feel if there was a clean brand that like did full coverage? Would you switch? And I realized there was 
so many people that wanted this. I love that you tested that. Yeah. That's really cool. I always think that it's like, there's so much value in asking the, like if you already have a built-in audience, like why not ask them? Exactly. And I feel like on social, like attract an audience that's very like-minded and similar to us. And so like, there's no better way to tap into your customer demographic because who it will be is like your people, these girls that are just like you. Totally. As you were saying, there is so much clean beauty out there, but it's complicated. Where do you think there needs to be the most innovation within the clean beauty space right now? Yeah, I think the most innovation really needs to just come from the formulation side. I think that it's so easy to cut ingredients out and, you know, put coconut oil and all these like substitutes in products, but they're not ultimately like the right formulations. And I think that's where the gap has been. There needs to be like more research on ingredients. What's a great silicone replacement? Like maybe it's not a completely natural product, but maybe it's a naturally derived synthetic. Like I think that there just needs to be a lot more thought into the efficacy versus just like trying to get stuff out because it's clean and natural and organic, because I don't think that's going to really take products to the level that is going to replace the conventional staples and totally the, the best sellers from the Estee Lauders and the L'Oreal's of the world. So I think that, you know, the formulations are really where innovation needs to happen. And from my perspective, that's definitely the hardest part now that I'm doing this and I've been in labs and I've tried zillions of lab samples and, you know, I've wanted to launch a mascara for two years and I can't get a formula that I love and I'm, I'm not there yet. So I'm just not launching it. Totally. And I, you know, I'm so attracted to beauty right now, just especially as a woman. I think that like it's an industry that has evolved and there's so much innovation in it and that's really Mm -hmm. appealing to me. But there's also so much more transparency than we've ever had, which I think is really important. People want to know what we're putting on our bodies, what we're putting on our faces every day. But I also see amazing founders like you and other beauty founders that I've interviewed that also feel a need to be as transparent as the industry is, is itself, whether that's like Botox or fillers, ingredients they're putting in, parts of their routine that make them look better that people, mm-hmm. you know, didn't know about. And I wonder for you as a founder of a beauty brand, especially when that's clean, if there's something that you feel particularly inclined to be transparent about for your followers and for your brand. Yeah. And I, I make a point to be really clear about this. Anytime I do a YouTube tutorial or like a makeup tutorial, I don't use all clean products in my makeup because I don't make all clean products yet for every single step of my makeup routine. And I created my brand because I'm someone that's not willing to sacrifice. So like I still use my Chanel Volume mascara because I can't find a clean mascara that I the like. Best mascara. It is the best. Right now. I have it on right now. It's my favorite. Oh, you do? It's yeah. so good. It's like, there's nothing like it. And until I can create something that makes me grab for what I've made over that, I'm not going to switch. And so I've tested and tried everything. And, you know, there's certain things where until there's a better version, I, I'm not going to compromise. And so I think, you know, I, my approach to clean is like not holier than now. I'm not sitting here saying like, I woke up and drink like a reishi tonic. And then I did my 40 minutes of like gyrotonic Pilates. And then I went to the spa and like, my life's just not like that. You know, I'm a, I'm a big mix of like what works for me. And for the most part, I use clean products, but if there's something that doesn't exist for me and I have a favorite that's conventional that I love, that's just a new project on my list that I need to create and keep working on. But I'm not going to pretend like I use all clean makeup when I don't think that there's something great out there in every single category that I need. And I think it's like a spectrum, right? And I think we might be leveling out like the pendulum in the middle right now where it was like in the beginning of this when sustainability was kind of at the forefront of our attention and clean beauty and making sure that our environments are one good for the planet, but also good for our own bodies. I think 
I, and I'm very open about this, it was extremely overwhelming for me. Mm-hmm. I felt like I needed to 180 change my life and be this person that like doesn't use plastic and only uses all clean products. And I think that's really overwhelming for the general consumer if you're not somebody that's extremely invested in it or it's not aligned with your values and part of your everyday life in a way that you were raised. So I think it's like, I love that you're transparent about that, especially as someone that is pioneering and an advocate for cleaner beauty is that it's, you know, it's not one size fits all. It's not that like, if you want to do this, you need to go hundred percent. Like I'm always the biggest advocate for implementing one small thing in your life, trying it out, seeing how it goes and growing from there. Absolutely. And like, I've never opened a woman's makeup bag and seen one brand throughout, like we have no loyalty in makeup. And so like, if you can swap one thing, cool, like go for it. If foundation is important to you, because that's the thing that most intimately touches your skin and it's a larger surface area, maybe just switch to a clean foundation, but like you can keep your Anastasia brow is or whatever. Like you don't have to be all or nothing. And so I think that's what needs to kind of be infused into clean is like that approachability and that fun factor. I think that clean has felt very just spa-like and organic and boring. And so then, you know, you walk in Sephora and you see these crazy gondolas from Fenty and Huda and Pat McGrath. And then you see the little clean section that's just all white and pure and sheer. It's so overwhelming. It's, yeah. And so I think, you know, I'm trying to play in the conventional space with better ingredients. I'm not trying to be this clean brand that I expect people to completely overhaul their makeup bag with. Totally. I love that. What do you see for the future of Lawless? I know you were talking earlier about wanting to merge into skincare. Is that something that you're actively working on now or are you just trying to stick to makeup? Yeah, so I don't know if I'll fully do like purely skincare launches, but I definitely, everything that I formulate kind of has skincare in mind. So I have a really exciting launch happening in May. It's kind of like a makeup skincare hybrid. But I do think that what drew me to clean makeup was really starting with my skincare and realizing there's so much overlap in ingredients and that you're putting your makeup on your face, just like you are your skincare, you're slathering it all over. So we should care. And so for me, everything I put on my face should have some benefits to it. Like if I'm going to be wearing my foundation all day, if I'm going to be wearing my concealer or powder all day, like why doesn't it have skincare things in here that are actually making my skin better over time? So I think that, you know, I definitely formulate from that lens and see myself doing a lot of really cool skincare related makeup items. Whether or not I'll get into like skincare, skincare is a whole nother story that I haven't really thought about, but you never know. It's been so cool to hear you talk about two different industries in this episode. And I do feel like today there's a little bit more of like slack on people not going a traditional route of like working Mm -hmm. in an office and rising in the ranks of one company. But I also do think that there is a pressure put on young people who are starting out that it is important to, you know, pick what you want, stay in that field, like, you know, do the thing from the mailroom to the C-level position. And I wonder what your advice or what you'd have to say to people that have been told that since you've really switched and been an entrepreneur in so many different fields. Yeah. So I was in law school and I became miserable. I was like so depressed for the first time in my life. I realized I had gotten my bachelor's in philosophy which was all about like thinking about our purpose and why we're here. And I loved studying it. And I really thought, okay, I'll apply that to law and, you know, helping people every day and thinking about principle and the right thing. And I got into law school and realized it wasn't like that at all. And that was really the first time I was like, F this. Like, I don't care what my plans are. I don't care how much money I've spent on school. I don't care that I've told everyone this is what I'm doing. Like, I am not waking up and going to class every day feeling this way and knowing I'm going to be stuck 
doing this once I get out because I have to pay off my school loans and then I have to be a researcher at a law firm and like basically live a life I'm not passionate about. And so I think being so sad and so down for that point in my life really taught me the world is your oyster. Like the world is wide open. We put all of these like societal pressures on ourselves to like follow a certain trajectory. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to be happy. And that was when I was like, you know what? I don't even care if I am doing this the rest of my life. I love making juice. So I'm going to wake up, make juice with my boyfriend and deliver it around San Diego. I used to make it and deliver it myself. That's actually how I met my current husband. He ordered juice for me and I delivered it. I love that story. (laughs) Once I did that, and then obviously I was very lucky that Suja worked out, but I don't think it was really luck. I mean, I made a point to pursue it and do it and do it all the way. And when you trust yourself and the universe that way and just go after things you're passionate about, I know this sounds so like hippy dippy, but things really do align and work out for you. Like if you're waking up and you're putting your passion out there every single day and doing something to further your goal, it will happen. Like it's not that complicated, but I think that's the trust that people need to put in themselves and really like jump two feet in that they're scared to do. And that's really the difference between successful people and unsuccessful people is that commitment to yourself and that trust. What do you wish that entrepreneurs were more transparent about? How hard it is. I think it's super easy. And like, I even sometimes like not gag at myself, but like whenever I do certain interviews and people are like, you're so successful and how'd you get here? I'm like, trust me. I'm not like I, every day is still a grind. It, there's all sorts of problems. You will not start a business and not have a, nightmares. Like there's just things that go wrong, plans that have to get changed, money that you lose. There's a lot of moving pieces and it's not a clear path to success. Like there will be a lot of t- turns and curves in the road. And I think that when people see entrepreneurs on the other side, they assume that it's all it's all easy and it's not, and it's hard work and everyone's been there. And so don't assume that everyone hasn't had their bad days because they have. I have been wanting to ask you this because I can definitely assume that you are a person that's been in a lot of rooms where you've had to pitch yourself, pitch your brand, show the pitch deck, do the whole thing. And I would love to hear your biggest piece of advice for people who are pitching themselves and their brand be confident and, and be authentic. But I mean, you know, you can feel like totally inflated when you're standing there pitching yourself. But at the same time, if you believe it, it's true. Like, don't be ashamed of that. And don't feel shy or embarrassed. Like you've got, if you can't sell yourself, no one's going to want to put money into your idea. Like if you can't get behind it, you can't expect anyone else to. So for me, it's just be confident and know that, you know, that story starts with you. And if you don't tell it, no one else is going to tell it for you. Ooh, I love that. Very true. And I feel like it's also like someone said to me the other day, you have to, it's better to have somebody believe in your company than try to convince them of it. Absolutely. And that really just comes from the authenticity and you just telling your story. And there's no reason you should be apologetic about that. And if you are putting yourself on the line and going all in on something, you better believe it and you better have conviction. And I think that's what really comes across most to investors and to people that are interested in acquiring is that authenticity and conviction in your brand, because that ultimately is what you want from them. And I know that right now is like probably a weird time to be asking about like work, personal life balance, but I'd love to hear a little bit about where you're at mentally with the beginning of your own family and especially while having a new company and how you're balancing that. Yeah. So my plan is really, I don't have plans for this. I'm definitely getting help. So I plan to have a nanny and a night nurse, which I feel super fortunate to be able to do, but 
I also know like that I had a working mom and I think it's really cool to have fulfilled parents and to be able to see that your parents are doing what they're passionate about and love every day. And that's ultimately what I want my daughter to do. So I think that I need to lead by example. So I have no plans to really slow down, but I'm also not going in like, I have to get back to work immediately. Or I, on the flip side, if I want to, I'm not going to say I have to breastfeed for a year, you know, like I'm going in so open-minded about this and like, we'll make all the decisions that work for us and just kind of get into my groove as I go along. So like, I'm just leaving that space for myself to see what evolves for me and our family. And then, you know, I think we all can create a structure that works for us. And that's where we ultimately thrive. It's not one size fits all. I love that. Yeah. What is the next big milestone you want to hit? What are you looking forward to? The next big milestone I want to hit. So right now we're in Sephora. We have a one bay fixture in 54 doors. And I think wow, the next big milestone would be to build our product assortment enough to go national and be in every door. I yeah. think that would be a really amazing thing. And then ultimately expand to two bays where we have enough cues that we can take up that much space. That's awesome. I love that. Clear path. Thank you so much for coming on. It was so nice to talk. I'm such a huge fan. And thank you for all the advice that you gave. Thank you. Likewise, I really enjoyed chatting with you. And thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Vs. See you next week.